0: Legends are true. We're overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes, the most legendary sauce has arrived. As McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wick, McDonald's the greatest flavors unite in all-new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece wick nuggets, fries, and sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal, and sit down for a new anime short every week. Only at Wick McDonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. Go.
1: At participating McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Years ago, I was flipping through TV channels and came across Hugh Laurie of Dr. House fame, decked out in 19th century English gentleman garb. Because I was a house fan, I was curious about what Hugh Laurie sounded like with his native British accent, so I paused my channel surfing to find out. Then I brought up the title and saw that I was watching Sense and Sensibility. Ugh, Jane Austen. No way am I going to like this, I thought. I associated Jane Austen with foo lady stuff. So my plan was to flip the channel as soon as I heard Dr. House talk British. Two hours later, the in credits for Sense and Sensibility scrolled down the screen. I had watched the entire thing, didn't even get up to go to the bathroom. Not only did I watch the whole movie, I remember thinking, man, that was really good. Thanks to Dr. House, my resistance to Austin was broken and I found myself genuinely curious about her books. So I got the free version of her collected works and slowly started working my way through what are arguably her three best, Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, and Emma. And I'll be darned if I didn't truly enjoy them all. If you're a dude who's written off Jane Austen's work as I once did, perhaps today's podcast will convince you there's something in it for women and men alike and encourage you to give her novels a try. My guest is John Mullen, professor of English and the author of What Matters in Jane Austen. John and I discussed the literary innovation Austin pioneered that influenced the likes of Larry McMurtry's Lonesome Dove and will give your social agility a healthy workout. John then explains why soldiers and Winston Churchill turned to Austin during the World Wars. We also discussed the philosopher Alistair McIntyre's argument that Austin's work was the last great representative of the classic tradition of virtues, Austin's idea of manliness, and how a man's choice of wife will shape his character. And John shares his recommendation for which Austin novel men should read first. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is austin. John Molan, welcome to the show.
0: Ah, it's good to be with you.
1: So you are a professor of English, and you specialize in one of my favorite writers, Jane Austen. You've written a lot about her, researched a lot about her. But I read in an interview as I was prepping for this art conversation that when you were a young man, you blew her off as an author. <laughs> um, so when did you discover Austen and change your view of her?
0: I think I remember I first read her because I had to read her in school. And I was probably, in my, I was probably 16 or 17 and I had to do a Jane Austen novel for A-levels, which are exams you do at the end of high school. And I realise now I was very fortunate. I had a very good teacher who actually used to get us to read books which weren't, weren't on the syllabus, you know. And so I read Persuasion because I had to, and Emma as a kind of backup. And i I think I thought two things. I thought, well, these are rather you know, substanceless stories. They're just stories about genteel young women trying to find a husband. You know, how, how important is that? The implied answer being not very important. Because I was 16 or 17 and I liked stories about people, I don't know, hunting whales or going up the Congo River or, you know, committing suicide at the end of the play. Or, you know, real stuff. Right. Hamlet, Heart of Darkness, Moby Dick, that stuff. But I would say in my defense, (laughs) I had some literary sensibility, I think. And I did even then recognize that they were really well written. (laughs) You know, so I didn't blow her off, really. And I didn't think this is valueless. I just thought what she wrote about didn't matter very much. And to put it very succinctly, I changed my mind Because as the years went by, mostly it was because I had to teach it. And what I noticed was a kind of simple thing, but it's a really extraordinary thing. And it happens with other really wonderful, complex, rich literature. And that was, I got it from my students, that each time you went back to it, the students on my behalf (laughs) noticed stuff I hadn't noticed before. So, it just kept rewarding more and more. The more you often you read it, the more you saw. And that's never disappeared for me. Even though there are Jane Austen novels I've read a dozen, 15 times, I still see things that I hadn't seen before.
1: So, before we get into Austen's work, let's talk about a little bit about her background. Sure. You know, when did she live? What was her life like?
0: And how did that influence her writing? Okay, so... So she was born in 1775. She was a vicar's daughter from Hampshire, which is kind of rural area. But I mean, it's not the back of beyond. It's, 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 you know, even in her day in the late 18th, early 19th century, it was perfectly feasible to go and travel to London if you had a little bit of money to pay, pay for the carriage. And. She came from it's difficult not to use rather anachronistic words, but you would sort of say in those days they would have said a genteel middling folk, we might say middle class, and she was one of eight siblings, so she had six brothers, five of whom were older than her, one younger, and she had one sister to whom she was with whom she was very, very close, Cassandra, who was a couple of years older than her, and she grew up in this family and Her brothers became things like vicars, two of them became vicars, and two of them became admirals in the Navy, and the church and the Navy, both figure in her novels. And I guess I'd say two things about her growing up, which I think are important. First of all, the more I sort of of get into her family life, I mean, the more admirable I think they are. I think they were open-minded, educated, tolerant, lively, optimistic people. So they weren't rich enough so that they didn't have to do jobs. One of Austen's brothers we might come to inherited, came upon an inheritance, which was very important for her later on. But the rest of them, they had to get jobs, which in the late 18th century wasn't what all gentlemen have to do. You know, Mr Darcy doesn't need a job. Mr Knightley doesn't need a job, but they needed jobs. And I think that they were, you know... They were a good family for her to grow up in. I mean, and it, you know, she loved her brothers. She loved her father. She loved her mother, although her mother was a very irritating hypochondriac. But still, it was a kind of happy and enlightened family. But it's very important that, you know, she hardly had hardly any formal schooling. She went to school for a year and a half, didn't learn much there. She learned it all from her brothers and especially from her father, who He was a university-educated man. He had a good book collection. She was very close with him. And just the second thing I will just sort of say about her life is that I think it's really important that although her novels were quite successful in her own lifetime, they were all published anonymously. The ones, two of them were only published after she died, but four of them were published in her lifetime. And Her name wasn't on them. So even though they were relatively successful, actually, and she earned a bit of money, most people didn't know who she was. She wasn't a name. And she published all her novels right near the end of her life. And she died, very sadly, when she was only 41 in 1817. She wrote some novels in the 1790s when she was in her 20s, tried to get them published without success. And then she was kind of discouraged by that. And then her father died when she was 29. And for the next few years, she and her mother and her sister had this a really difficult existence because they depended on her father's pension, basically, and it disappeared when he died. And they travelled around, so sort of staying with various relations and various brothers. And luckily, well, I'll bring this story to a halt quite soon, but but luckily one of her brothers, Edward, had been, you might find this weird, Brett, but it's not uncommon at the time, he'd been given to childless rich relations. And Edward was brought up by a very rich family in Kent called the Knights, and he took their name and he became their heir. And after they died, he inherited all sorts of land and property, and that included a manor house house in a place called Chawton in Hampshire, which anybody who visits England, you can go and visit it. And even better, you can visit the house that he sort of gave rent-free to Jane, Cassandra, and her mother to live in, which was in the village where the manor house was, and it was part of the estate. And she moved there in 1809, so she's 34 years old, 33, 34 years old. And in the next eight years, she produced her six novels. Bang, 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 bang. Because suddenly she had, you know, she had somewhere secure and her brothers clubbed together to give them enough to live on. And she could go back to. Some of the drafts she'd made in her early 20s, and she could write these novels. And so extraordinary in the you know, she basically wrote a novel a year until she died in 1817. And <laughs> the family had a special agreement that because they did have some sort of servants who came in to help, but, you know, a lot of the domestic economy was done by the women themselves. And the deal was that Jane Austen had to do breakfast. Okay, so she had to get the breakfast ready and clear it and make the coffee, make the tea, do all that stuff and clear it up afterwards. And after that, she was done for the day. <laughs> and whilst her sister was sort of making butter or bread or whatever, Jane Austen could write her novels because her family did sort of realise that, that they'd got somebody quite talented on their hands or in their house. So that's a sort of sketch. I hope, yeah. I hope it tells you something about her.
1: So Austin, we talk about her today because her stories, they're good. Like They're just really good stories, lots of characters. <laughs> yes. But the re- one of the reasons why we people are still talking about her is that she made a lot of literary innovations that contributed to the novel. And you still see yes. novelists use the things that she came up with when she's writing her stuff. Yes. You're still seeing them using today. One of those innovations you talk about is free indirect speech. What is that? Can you give us an example okay. of that?
0: So, yeah, I'll give you a little example. I mean, what it is in general, it's a technique whereby, you know, you probably know, I mean, novels can be, stories can be told in all sorts of ways, but a lot of novels, and the majority of them actually, can be divided up into either told in the third person, you know, he did this, she did that, he thought this, she thought that, or the first person you know, where the whole novel is the protagonist's owner can. You know, Jane Eyre, great expectations, what have you. Catch her in the rye. <laughs> and what Jane Austen, I think, more or less invented, although rarely got the credit for it, because in the English novel it didn't exist before her, was this technique, which, as you rightly say, Brett, it's called free and direct speech or free and direct style, and the actual name for it wasn't coined until the 1920s, but it existed before the name. And what it is is narrating in the third person, as all her novels are, but with the narration the storytelling sort of percolated through the consciousness of one of the characters, or a better metaphor maybe, bent through the lens of a character's way of seeing the world. So sharing their prejudices, their fears, their preoccupations, their delusions sometimes. And in some novels, like Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen will do that mostly through the consciousness of the heroine, Elizabeth Bennet, but not entirely. So you get bits through where the narrative is affected by one of the other characters. And in one of her novels, Emma, almost the whole novel, bar two chapters, very carefully placed chapters, is through the eyes, through the consciousness of Emma. For those who aren't familiar with it... It's about a young woman who is handsome, clever and rich, we're told in the very first sentence of the novel, and she meddles in other people's lives with sort of good intentions. She wants to make matches for them, marry them off, and almost... The whole novel is seen through her her eyes, although it's narrated in the third person. And she has lots and lots of views about what other people are thinking, and they're mostly wrong. But nobody ever tells you she's wrong. You have to work it out. So there there are lots of great novelists like Dickens or George Eliot, who are there in their novels, talking to you, telling you, guiding you, ruminating, philosophizing. And that's often, if a novelist is good enough, a wonderful experience. But Virginia Woolf once said, who was a huge Austen fan, said, the brilliant thing about Jane Austen is she's not there at all. And I think there's a lot of truth in that, because of this technique, she can leave you following the story through the sort of track of the character And see how you, what you make of it. So I was going to give you a little example. So Emma, near the beginning of the novel, she's got this little protege called Harriet Smith, who's three years younger than her. And Harriet Smith is a nobody who's been Dumped at the local little school for ladies in the village because her father is some well to do businessman and she's his illegitimate child and he's paying for her to be looked after. But she doesn't even, Harriet doesn't even know who he is. And so she's called Smith, the most common English name. And she is very sweet natured, very pretty. And Really, quite stupid. (laughs) And Emma takes her on as a sort of Pygmalion thing. You know, she's going to mold her. She's going to be, Harriet's going to be her project, if you like. So it's this very, very unequal friendship between the two. Emma persuades Harriet to turn down a proposal of marriage from a reasonably well off gentleman farmer who she thinks is not good enough for Harriet, but who the reader can see is in love with her. And what's more, the reader can sort of intuit that Harriet loves him back. But Emma thinks he's not good enough and persuades Harriet to turn him down and instead encourages Harriet to think that the really smooth, good-looking, genteel local vicar, Mr Elton, is keen on her and a likely prospect. Okay, so one day they're out in the lane and Emma is thinking, how can we get into Mr Elton's house? How can we get into the vicarage so that they can have a little tete-a-tete? And she sees Mr Elton coming down the lane. She pretends to break her lace in her boot. Oh, my lace is broken. And Mr Elton invites them in the house. And Emma leaves Mr Elton and Harriet alone together, in the sitting room. Very difficult in the Jane Austen world in these novels for a man and a woman to be alone together. And Emma's off with the housekeeper, talking very loudly so that Mr Elton can hear she's down, (laughs) not in the room, she's not coming, about the lace. And sorry you have such a long description, but in Jane Austen novels there's always so much going on. (laughs) And she comes back into the room. And I'll just read you a couple of sentences, okay? She says it it could be protracted no longer, this business with the lace. She was then obliged to be finished and make her appearance. The lovers were standing together at one of the windows. It had a most favourable aspect and for half a minute, Emma felt the glory of having schemed successfully, but it would not do he had not come to the point. He had been most agreeable, most delightful. He told Harriet that he'd seen them go by and had purposely followed them. Other little gallantries and allusions had been dropped, but nothing serious. So what Emma is actually hoping is that by leaving them alone, he, Mr. Elton is actually going to propose marriage. You know, this is his chance But if you think about that very first sentence in that little bit that I've read out, is terribly simple. The words in it are terribly simple. Anybody could have written it. The lovers were standing together at one of the windows. But they're not lovers. They're not lovers at all. And, in fact, the reader already has been given plenty of evidence to allow him or her to work out that, of course, Mr Elton's interested in Emma, not in Harriet, and actually, it turns out, that not only are they not lovers, but you'll find out, spoiler alert, a few chapters later from Mr Elton's own lips, that he despises Harriet. He absolutely despises her as beneath him. And he only pretends to be nice to her because he's trying to get Emma. But it's all keyed on that little sentence, the lovers were standing together at one of the windows. And the, the funny thing is... It's such a simple sentence, and yet until Jane Austen came along, nobody could have written it.
1: So yeah, it's the third. It's still third person, but it's third person with Emma's filter, yes. right? And what's it's, interesting? What it I,
0: totally, yeah. it totally adopts her delusion, right? Yeah, it doesn't say, you know, those whom Emma thought were lovers, or it doesn't say what you know another Lombardist might say. Emma came in and thought, Ah, the lovers are standing together at one of the windows. That's, as it were, direct speech or direct thought. Just the lovers were standing together at one of the windows.
1: And what it does is it makes you feel more connected to the characters. And what I, it's interesting, you see this free indirect style. Once you learn about it, you see it everywhere. Yes, My favorite novel of all time is Larry McMurtry's Lonesome Dove?
0: Oh, um, I've never read it. I've oh, never read it. Okay. So I'm afraid. I'm
1: going to send you a copy. Okay, it's, do. It's, it's about about a bunch of cowboys who take a cattle drive from South Texas to Montana. Yes, no, I've heard. Yeah. It.
0: I've, I've often heard of it. And yes. I, I
1: love it. And I did an interview with American literary scholar Stephen Fry about Lonesome Dove. And he, one thing he said that really blew me away. And I find when I when he said it, it's like that's why. Of course, this is why I like Jane Austen too, and I like Lonesome Dove. He said Larry McMurtry was heavily influenced by the social novel of the nineteenth century. So like the particularly Jane Austen. And what if you read Lonesome Dove, he does the free and direct style. Like he'll and he switches, it's like you 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 hear the you're looking at the character and then you're doing this third person thing, but it's like the it's like the person is thinking. It's like almost first person but not. And that's Jane Austen. Like she invented that.
0: Yes, she did. She did I mean it's obviously what's he called Larry McMurtry? Larry McMurtry. M- Mercury. I mean, he obviously was kind of, sounds like he was quite sort of conscious yeah, of, what, was, of literary yeah. technique. I mean, one of the weird things about the history of free and direct style is actually, and I've talked to novelists about it, you know, living, practicing novelists, and it entered the bloodstream of the European novel so completely that novelists do it without even knowing they're, do- <laughs> they're doing it. Yeah. You know, uh, I talked to a contemporary novelist called John Lanchester who wrote a great novel called Mr. Phillips, and I, I was solemnly interviewing him in my, my academic way and saying, oh, yeah, and this is one of the most interesting sort of exercises in free and direct style. And he said, what's that? And I told him, and he said, oh, yes, I suppose that's what I was doing. I've never heard of it
1: before. <laughs> And the other thing about Austin that makes her fun to read, because as you're just doing that setup for Emma, there's a lot of, well, he was thinking this, and she was thinking that, and actually, he was actually thinking this. It's a workout for your social mind. Totally. And one thing I've read is that reading Austin can help you develop what psychologists call a theory of mind ah right.
0: uh, yes yes yes
1: right it's understanding like you you make guesses of what other people are thinking yes. based on body language or yes. you know, actions yes. and that's all Jane Austen's all theory of
0: mind all the time I agree I think that's a really good way of seeing it I mean Jane Austen didn't say very much about her novel writing most of her letters, were letters to her sister and they're all about the weather and getting colds and how difficult it is to travel to Guildford and things. (laughs) But she does say that the thing she expects from her reader is ingenuity. It's quite an interesting word. So, you know, a novel like Emma, you have to be switched on. And the the theory of mind that you mention, I think, the fascinating thing with Jane Austen is that it's it works in a sort of double way on the one hand, you look at the characters saying and doing things, and you see their consciousness of each other so she 's a wonderful, wonderful writer of dialogue and the thing about Jane Austen novels is that when people say things to other people everything they say and do is shaped by their assumptions about what the other person is thinking you know which is the way life is but it's not the way that all dialogue in novels is not many novelists can do it as well as her but also there's this second sort of theory of mind aspect which is the one in a way we've just been talking about that as a reader you have to be she's not going to do it all for you You have to work it out So you have to, you know, in that bit I've just read out, you have to be up to noticing that you're inhabiting a delusional state here in that simple little sentence, the lovers. And the really clever thing about her novels is some of the time it's not so hard to pick out what assumptions are shaping the character the, you know the sentences, and sometimes you have to be really clever <laughs> yeah. and that 's one of the reasons it 's back to where we started Brett you know that 's one of the reasons they so much repay rereading because there are things you 're never, you're never clever enough to notice it all we 're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors
1: Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn 't be. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for, turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you wanna try Fast Growing Trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code MANLINESS at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code MANLINESS at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code MANLINESS, Once again, that's ziprecruiter.com slash manliness. Ziprecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now back to the show. So I imagine there's a lot of men listening to this podcast that might have written off Jane Austen as you know a sentimental writer that's geared primarily towards a female audience. But what's interesting is I've been surprised to learn, as if you go back in history, it's men who often turned to Austen during times of war and adversity. So I know during World War 1, a lot of the British yes. soldiers, they read Austen when they were in the trenches. And I know during World War II, Winston Churchill, like during the Blitz, he was reading Jane Austen. <laughs> so I mean, what what is it about Austen's writing that caused these men to turn to her during times of war?
0: Okay. Well, I mean, that's a really interesting question because yeah, there's a a, a really good your, your listeners might want to kind of chase it down. There's a, there's a really good, um, Kipling short story called the Janeites. He invented the word Janeite, I think, which is exactly about, it's set after the first world war, but it's about men meeting up again because they were united in the trenches by exactly what you've just said, their enthusiasm for Jane Austen. I think it's two things coming together. One is that it is a sort of, you know, I imagine if you're at the Somme, I mean, obviously I'm just imagining, but my grandfather was there. My grandfather was at the Battle of the Somme and was indeed badly injured at it. Jane Austen's world must seem a blessed relief. You know, it is this elegantly circumscribed world of you know, as she said, three or four families in a village. So, you know, nobody's going to get shot in a Jane Austen novel. But I think very often people just focus on that and assume that means the pleasure for some of those male readers in difficult situations or dangerous situations was one of escapism. And I I just think, you know, judging from accounts people give as well as from her novels, that's not true because within these worlds you know lots of the people lots of the characters are behaving in the most monstrous and selfish and absurd ways you know her novels here's a here's a pitch for them they're terribly terribly funny Mm
1: -hmm. yeah
0: and you can enter them and become absorbed and find them really really funny evidently from what people said as the shells are going overhead you know And so it's a mixture. You escape into her world, but it's not an escape, really, because the people there are as complicated and ridiculous and their feelings and desires are as ignoble or absurd as in any other, you know, as as in life. So I think, you know, it's that doubleness of them. Harold Macmillan, when he was prime minister, he said the same thing as Churchill. I think being prime minister was a bit different in those days from what it is now. But in the 1950s, he said at least, at least once a week, on a weekday, he would make an hour or two after lunch to go into the garden of Downing Street and read Jane Austen. I and mean, then he would come back, as it were, set up <laughs> for the, work, the rest of the working week.
1: So, the philosopher Alistair MacIntyre, he called Jane Austen one of the last great representatives of the classical tradition of the virtues. I mean, MacIntyre thinks that Austen was an Aristotelian virtue ethicist. What do you make of that description?
0: Oh, gosh well i I mean that's real you know I need to, <laughs> the honest answer would be I need to run away and think about it because yeah. I wonder, for instance you know and there's- pr- it's probably possible to find an answer to this, whether she ever read any Aristotle in translation, but whether she did because it's likely that her father you know might have had it in his library and but also the trouble is the question is designed to to test my very thin knowledge of Aristotle. But as I understand it, I mean, I think there are certain things which are, as I understand it, yes, quite Aristotelian about her novels, which, I mean, one thing I associate with Aristotle is the notion that, you know, that ethics are a practical business, that you start with life, you don't start with a theory. Right. And that it's the choices that human beings make, practically in their lives which reveal their capacity for particular virtues and jane austen you know people sometimes write about her and try to work out what her beliefs were you know father was a clergyman, two of her brothers. Was she a very keen Anglican? Was she very devout? Was she very religious? How much are her novels Christian? And, and that's all a bit of a fool's errand, really, because of this thing Wolfe mentioned that Jane Austen absents herself and lets the characters take over. I think MacIntyre, I don't know about Aristotelian, but I mean, I do think he's got a point in that you can, it's one way to read them, you can read them as characters constantly being presented especially the heroines with sort of ethical choices and it's no bad schooling in ethical choices and no bad schooling because these are very ordinary choices and you and I may not live in you know the Jane Austen world of a Hampshire village in the early 19th century. But most of the choices, they're not much to do with the society, of the times, actually. They're to do with things that we would all recognise about, you know, selflessness and selfishness, about envy and magnanimity. I mean, magnanimity is a good one. I think that is a, an Aristotelian virtue, there's an amazing moment could I give you an example yeah which would I think agree. Aristotle would have recognized <laughs> okay so again as I've done so much plot summary of Emma let's stick with that for a second Harriet is schooled by Emma to have ideas above her station, and to put it bluntly, this comes back to bite Emma because Emma gets completely wrong who Harriet has her eyes on as a possible husband. They quite soon find out the truth about Mr. Elton's feelings. But a lot later on in the novel, there's a character called Mr. Knightley, who's the male lead, and who has a certain tenderness for Emma, and whose judgment is quite important to Emma. But he's quite a lot older than her. Emma is 20. He's 36, 37. And she's used to having him as a friend and advisor and anyway there comes a point late in the novel where Emma has encouraged Harriet to think about this man Frank Churchill as a possible husband but she hasn't mentioned his name and essentially Harriet's got the wrong end of the stick and has assumed that Emma was encouraging her to think about Mr Knightley as a potential husband and There's a big scene when this is revealed. It's one of the most brilliant chapters in all fiction, I think. And you're in Emma's mind, really. And Emma has got this wonderful sentence, why was it so awful (laughs) that Harriet was in love with Mr Knightley rather than Frank Churchill? And it says something like, instantly, with the speed of an arrow, it went through Emma's mind that Mr. Knightley must marry no one but herself. (laughs) And it's comic, but it's also potentially catastrophic because then Emma says to Harriet, and you've got to remember what she's like, she's dull-witted but very sweet-natured and good-hearted, Harriet, and so she cannot tell a lie. Yes, you can really rely on what she says, however limited, it precisely because she is so limited. And Emma says to Harriet, have you any idea that Mr Knightley returns your affection? And Harriet says to her, yes, I rather think I do. And it's the most awful moment in the whole novel for Emma because she knows that Harriet wouldn't say that if Harriet didn't think it was true. And she knows that Harriet, in her naivety, must have sent something real. And then there's this great moment of magnanimity when Harriet then immediately says, while Emma's thinking, oh no, my whole life is falling to pieces, where Harriet says to Emma, you know, Would you encourage me? Do you think I'm do you think I'm mad? sort of thing? She doesn't say that, but something like that. And Emma, it's this great moment, because Emma knows that she has. She has a real sort of thought control over Harriet, and she knows that Harriet's going to believe what she tells her. And she doesn't say, oh, I think you're fantasising. <laughs> <coughs> and she doesn't say, oh, Mr Knightley is a wealthy landowner; He's never, he's never going to marry a, a nobody like you. She says the truth, or a truth. She says, Harriet... Mr. Knightley is the last man in the world who would ever give a woman the idea that he feels more for her than he does. And A, that's completely true. Mr. Knightley is like that. B, it tells you something about Emma's relationship with Mr. Knightley, even though he's not there, because Emma can talk twaddle about anybody, but she can't talk twaddle rubbish bunkum about mr knightley because actually hardly only just acknowledged by herself she loves him and so she has to speak the truth about him but also finally thirdly see it's a magnanimous moment it's a really magnanimous moment and harriet is duly ecstatic at being told this and kisses her hand and says oh thank you thank you thank you because Emma has, has sort of given her the green light, and even though it goes against all her interests, all her feelings. And, you know, I would say that's Aristotelian magnanimity, is it not? I think so.
1: And the, yeah, the way I read it, so Aristotle, he was really concerned about people becoming, becoming good people right and and you did that by doing good things like you you became yes. virtuous by doing virtuous things and like how you said aristotle was very workaday like money played into that social status yes. played into that love played into that how you spent your free time played into that and jane austen talks about that you see characters starting to make decisions with those sort of workaday things that w- would allow them to become a complete virtuous person
0: yes Yes, yes. yeah, and, and it's certainly the case in Jane Austen in really, I mean, it's the case in lots of novels, but it's the case in Jane Austen in very subtle ways that there are plenty of people, characters in her novels, including sometimes the heroines, because they're not perfect at all, who are good at talking about being good, you know, talking about Christian virtues. And, you know, one of the subtleties of her fiction is that what you and I might call the bad people in her novels, think they're good too. They think they're good. Mrs Norris in Mansfield Park, who's one of the great sadists of world fiction, to my mind, who gets her kicks, really, from tormenting the heroine, Fanny Price, whom she resents for being a poor relation, whom she resents for having been sent to live with the rich Bertrams, her own sister and their family lady bertram and their family her family she's a torturer really she's a tormentor of servants who's always pretending that she's helping them out but in fact is making their lives awful but she quotes scripture more frequently than anybody in the novel and we find out that she thinks of herself as a virtuous person you know And (laughs) that's one of the complications of, of a delightful complication of Austen's fiction that you don't get, there's no cardboard villains. No. And what's interesting too is about that idea
1: of some characters weren't even aware that they weren't virtuous. I mean, that's one of the other things you see in her novels is you see the heroines specifically discover, I'm not as good as I thought I was. Right. Yes, I'm, yes. I am like, you know, uh, was it uh, Elizabeth Bennett? Like I am prejudiced. Like I got this, I think this uh, Darcy guy is a prig, but no, actually I just, I'm really prejudiced against him. Um, yes. Marianne in Sense and Sensibility, where yes. she finally realized like Willoughby, yeah, she, they had a lot in common with book taste and things like that, sort of this passion for life. But boy, I was really, I was kind of dumb. He, he was a yes. cad, right? So the, the, all the heroines they had, or even Emma, there's a moment of, like, I guess Aristotle would call peripatia, like self awareness, yeah. sort of a, and yes. Like I am not that great, and I need to do better. Yeah.
0: Absolutely, and I think also properly Aristotelian is the fact that, say, the first example you gave, Brett, of uh, Elizabeth Bennet. It's not just that she realizes she's been wrong about Mister Darcy, but she's also been wrong about Mister Wickham, who she took rather a fancy to, who's actually a bad guy, and like a true practical philosopher, she then rehearses in her head the memories of the conversations she's had with Mr. Wickham, where he's told her lots of lies, basically, about Mr. Darcy and about himself. And she realises that she should have known, just like the reader who read those dialogues should know, because Mr. Wickham, for instance, he tells her loads of stuff that he shouldn't tell her, he overconfides, we might say and so even if it were true there's something wrong about somebody who on a mere acquaintance starts telling you yes it's like the person you meet for the first time and you find you have no somebody in common and this person starts telling you kind of slagging that person off but telling you you know maybe quite private things That they shouldn't be telling you about, not on this mere acquaintanceship. And she realizes that if she'd been a proper, as it were, scrutineer of what she was hearing, she would have known already without further evidence that there was something wrong about it. I think Aristotle would have approved of that.
1: I think so too. So you mentioned in an email that the characters, the main characters, they were heroines, they were women. But you, you make the case that Austen has a lot to say about manliness. Uh, yes. What did manliness mean to her and what was her ideal of a good man?
0: Well, I think she had t- several ideals. I mean, I could list them as a list of qualities, but that might in a way be quite banal because they'd be unsurprising ones. Kindness, generosity, magnanimity, humor. <laughs> But reading her, not—I mean, if you, you could—you get ideas of manliness from reading her novels. But I think it's important to know that you get them in quite indirect ways, where they're exactly the sort of thing you only get on a kind of maybe you get more and more on a second or third reading. Because apart from in Mansfield Park, there are no scenes in Jane Austen's novels where only men are present. There are a couple of short two or three short scenes in Mansfield Park where only men are present. There are lots and lots of scenes where only women are present. So you don't find out what men are like together, what men say to each other, but there's lots of evidence for it. There's lots of sort of clues. And what she does most of the time is allow you to find out about sort of the good things about her male leads, because they're the representatives of manliness, I suppose, indirectly. So in Emma, you find out, you hear what Mr Knightley's like when he speaks, and he's humorous, and he's wise, and he's clever, and he's particularly humorous, wise, and clever when it comes to Emma. And he says he says great things, you know, but also you're seeing things mostly from Emma's point of view. So you find out about Mr. Knightley indirectly. And I think that's the sort of, you know, the exemplification of manly virtues that you get in Jane Austen's novels is all the more enjoyable because you find out about it indirectly. So often So you find out Mr. Knightley is incredibly kind, but, he's sort of secretly kind because he knows that he's surrounded by people who pretend to be kind. So you find out in the very plot of the novel that he's done little things which, you know, first time around you hardly notice, you know, that he's arranged for people who can't, for women, these women who haven't got enough money to travel anywhere because you have to have a carriage, and he's arranged for his carriage, which he doesn't usually use because he hasn't got the horses for it. And he's hired horses and got a coachman. And and you never get told that. You have to work it out from the events in the novel that he's doing all these sort of kind things. And he, you know, each of the men, Captain Wentworth in Persuasion, Mr. Darcy in Pride and Prejudice. They're really different in their aspects of masculinity, but you find out about their virtues indirectly. And I guess one thing they've got in common is how they behave, or in Mr. Darcy's case, how he has to learn to behave, because <laughs> he's on a learning curve with Elizabeth Bennet, towards women. And... I would say that, you know, in a way that is not particularly political at all, but is integral to the stories, the men whom are worth admiring or liking or marrying (laughs) are ones who treat women as their equals. And... I don't mean that in a sort of rights of woman way. I mean, because not because I've no idea what Captain Wentworth thought about the rights of woman. It's not part of what the novel's about. But it's a really, it's a rare kind of behaviour in the novels and one that these very different men all sort of share. And Mr Darcy, you know, he's a tricky customer and he's partly a tricky customer because... He's handsome and very, very rich. And every young woman he meets is having a go at trying to hook him. And then he meets this woman, Elizabeth Bennet, who is uh, miles below him socially, who has almost no money, and who teases him, and who doesn't try to hook him, and who amuses him, and who sort of fences with him and and who brings out the better aspects, thereby, of his manliness. And that's a real sort of Jane Austen, I guess it was something she believed, but it was also something she dramatises in her novels. You know, they're about love and marriage and... It's true for all the men in her novels that if they marry the right women, they become better men.
1: <laughs> no, and this is, this is Aristotelian. So another reason I love Jane Austen is even though she never got married, I think she offers some of the best advice out there on romance and marriage. And it's precisely what you were talking about. For Austen, you wanted to find someone that would make you better. Yes. make you more virtuous. And that that's an Aristotelian thing. So Aristotle has this idea about the different types of friends you could have. There's like a friend you like to have a good time with. You know, you talk about the things you have in common. There's a friend that's useful, right? There's a friend who you can go to them because they, I don't know, they got connections or whatever and help you with their yes. job. But he said that the best type of friend you want to look for is those friends of virtue, the friends yes. that make you more virtuous. And for Austin, that's what you want to look for in a spouse.
0: Yes, Yes, I mean, to exemplify w- what you were saying, Brett, there's a wonderful moment, a real Jane Austen moment in Persuasion, where Anne Elliot, okay, she's been proposed to when she was 19 by this dashing but impecunious young naval officer, a mere lieutenant, called Frederick Wentworth. And although she loves him disastrously, her mum's dead and it's not there to advise her and she's persuaded by her sort of substitute mother, Lady Russell, to turn him down. And he's got no prospects. You'll just ruin his career anyway if he, you encumber him with marriage. And Anne is very young and very un unworldly, and disastrously she goes along with Lady Russell and turns him down. And then at the beginning of the novel, he's come back eight years later, and he's now rich, successful, still attractive as hell, (laughs) and she still loves him. And we find out that in the meantime, she did get another proposal. Three years later, she got a proposal from this local sort of squire son called Charles Musgrove. And Charles Musgrove proposed to her. And, of course, she turned him down because she still loves the absent Captain Wentworth. And Charles Musgrove then goes and says, oh, you won't marry me. And he he goes and proposes instead to Anne's gruesomely self, selfish hypochondriac sister, Marion. And she says, yes. And those, those two become quite big characters in the novel. But anyway, Anne is a really good person. Jane Austen famously said of Anne Elliot, the sixth of her heroines, she's almost too good for me. And Anne is endlessly thoughtful and unselfish, and to the point sometimes almost of masochism. But you inhabit the novel through her mind, through her consciousness. And there's one bit where you catch her thinking an extraordinary thing, she thinks something which she would never say because she's too generous and kind a person. She's observing Charles Musgrove, who's endlessly having sort of slightly petulant little tiffs with his wife, Mary. And, you know, they're, they're married, they've got two kids, they're going to be together forever, but they have a slightly kind of low-level, rancorous Relationship. They're always disagreeing with each other, criticizing each other. When they're apart, they're always complaining about each other. And she looks at Charles and she thinks this thing, which a person might think, but, you know, a self respecting person wouldn't say. She thinks if I'd married him, if I'd said yes five years ago, he would have become a much better person than he is now (laughs) because she knows what Mary's like and she knows that Jane Austen thing that marriage shapes men it's not just they make a choice and that's that the choice then ramifies down the years and she's right Charles is not essentially a bad guy And if he'd married Anne, he would be more thoughtful. He would read more books, which is not a bad thing. (laughs) He maybe would be a bit more involved with his children. He wouldn't spend his whole time escaping to do hunting and shooting or shooting and fishing. And he would be a better person because when men make those choices of partners – It shapes their characters.
1: Well, we've uncovered a lot, I feel like, in this conversation. For those who are interested in wanting to read Austen, is there a book you'd recommend men starting off with?
0: Yeah. I mean, I would definitely start with Pride and Prejudice. I think, it's just a, a perfect book. I don't think it's the most complicated of her books, but I think it's the funniest of her books. And I think that also, you know, in terms of the, I think it's got a heroine, that, um, you know, I remember when I first got into Pride and Prejudice, which I think I didn't read till I was in my 20s, and I sort of thought, gosh, I really hope I meet an Elizabeth Bennet. And then I would pause in my thoughts and think, "But I really hope I could sort of cope with her. (laughs) And so I think it's got a heroine who is, you know, a, I don't, I I don't know how to put this except to say, really attractive to a male reader, (laughs) you know. And I think it's also got a male lead who is really interesting. If you think, if you're thinking, what are men like? What should they be like? What are typical? What are the typical follies of men? Even of kind of intelligent, good-hearted you know, reasonable men, you know, and Mr. Darcy, Jane Austen does this really difficult thing with him, which is to make him worth marrying. He's worth getting Elizabeth, but also she has to wean him off his sort of self-importance really. And usually self-important characters in novels are really unattractive. And Jane Austen does this thing of making his self-importance not disgusting and even sort of forgivable. So yeah, I definitely start with Pride and Prejudice. Awesome. Well,
1: John, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your book and your work?
0: Oh, well, (laughs) my book, What Matters in Jane Austen, but I've read that wrong because you've got a question mark. What matters in Jane Austen? to which i guess the one word answer is everything everything every little detail so that's kind of widely available i mean i you said at the beginning i'm a professor of english literature and so i am but you know if it doesn't sound too self vaunting i wrote this book for people who enjoy reading novels and people who enjoy reading jane austen and i didn't write it for students or for let alone for other academics although i would hope that they too might want to read it and might find out things about it. But it's a book which is very much about her novels. I mean, not so much about her or the times or the history or the background, although I hope you'd find out some things about those things. But it's a book to read once you've read a little bit of Jane Austen, I think. And I've also edited, done editions of Jane Austen's novel. I've done an edition for Oxford World's Classics of Sense and Sensibility and Emma.
1: Well, John Mullen, thanks for time. It's been a pleasure. It's been great. My guest today was John Mullen. He's the author of the book, What Matters in Jane Austen. It's available on amazon.com. Make sure to check out our show notes at aom.is slash austin, where you can find links to resources. We can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com, where you can find our podcast archives. And while you're there, make sure to sign up for our newsletter. There's a weekly or daily option, and it's free. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to StitcherPremium.com, sign up, use code MANLYS to check out for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to get your review on the podcast or Spotify. It helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay. Remind you to not listen to the podcast, but put what you've heard into action.